0: Hello and welcome to the World As We Know It podcast. I'm your host, Ellie Mihailova, and I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. John Coulter, who has been reporting on diverse topics from doing political investigations to reporting on the troubles for over 45 years now. Since retiring as a political commentator for the Irish Daily Star in 2015, John has been working as a freelance journalist and broadcaster. As you know, John, I'm currently on a mission or a journey of discovery, some may say, to find more about the troubles, the conflict here in NI. But I also want to hear more about your own upbringing and early life, your journey in the journalism world, and your personal experiences of living in NI during the troubles.
1: Yeah, well, I, I grew up uh, in the troubles, both as a young person and as a reporter. Uh, So from that point of view, the troubles, unfortunately, has been part of my DNA Uh, and as well as that, right at the very heart of it, uh, my late father, as well as being a Presbyterian minister, was also a politician. So we were right in it. And uh, I've had friends murdered by terrorists and I've actually had a cousin who was murdered uh, by terrorists. And I think one of the most tragic things that uh, I know that my late father had to do was to formally identify my cousin's body uh, after he had been blown up uh, in uh, an IRA booby trap bomb. Uh, in the 1970s and it was a horrific experience for him because he decided that he would do it uh, in terms of the formal identification rather than put his wife through that formal identification.
0: I already know some bits about your background and interests but for those who are not so familiar please tell us more.
1: Yeah, well my background is very much uh, in the Christian church. Uh, My grandparents uh, were very big in what was called the faith mission movement. Uh, My father uh, and mother, they were in the mainstream Presbyterian church uh, in in Ireland, so that I was a preacher's kid uh, by upbringing. Uh, It was a fairly tough upbringing uh, because the church that my father took on, Clough Presbyterian Church near Ballymena, It was a church where the previous minister who was there, the Reverend Robert Lennox, he had been there for 40 years. Mm -hmm. He had no family, which meant whenever my sister and I came along, there was no one alive in the church who could really remember kids in the months. It was that long ago. So that my sister and I, we were the freak show. And these people had a rather Victorian view as to how the minister's son should behave. So they had this image of me wearing my Sunday best suit, twenty four seven at all times. At all times, with a huge big Bible under one arm and listening to the Scottish Metrical Psalms. Um, I didn't conform to that. Uh, I had long hair. He- I had hair. Uh, At that time, I wore status quo, uh, Led Zeppelin t-shirts. I I basically wore jeans. I was into heavy metal, big time, ACDC, Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin. Uh, And I remember the look on one lady's face when she came to the Presbyterian manse, and I opened the door and there was the famous Black Sabbath anthem, Paranoid, roaring through the manse on 200 watt speakers. So from that point of view, I was a culture shock to that part of the Bible Belt and whilst I always uh, maintained that I wanted to follow in my dad's footsteps after I became a born again Christian and become a Presbyterian minister, as I moved rapidly through my teens, it became very clear that this was going to be a tough option and uh, I actually stumbled into journalism more by accident Mm -hmm. than by design.
0: How did that happen?
1: Yeah, well, a lot of people would criticize me. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, clothes I wore, uh, the music I listened to, friends I kept, all that sort of thing. And it was always yap, 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 yap. And one of the ways in which I coped with all this was to give nicknames to people Mm -hmm. in the church. And there was one particular individual and she was always criticizing me And I gave her the very misogynistic uh, nickname, Sarpus. And uh, one night I was going into a function in the church hall and out came Sarpus. And I think, oh no, here we go. Another nagging from Sarpus. But she was, hello, John, how (laughs) are you? And I thought, this is a bit of a put on what's going on here. So I made a few inquiries as to why Sarpus was being so nice to me. Mm. And what came back to me was... um, Basically, somebody called a journalist had wanted to do an interview with my dad about life as a rural Presbyterian minister. And Sarpus got to hear about this interview and she became worried that my father might say, well, you know, they give my son a hard time. My dad would never do that. Dad knew that, I knew that, but Sarpus didn't. So I just made a simple deduction. If a journalist is what these yaps are scared of, a journalist i will become
0: yeah
1: Uh, and that's why i went into journalism for me journalism was not a career that i wanted to do since i was able to pick up a pen Mm -hmm. journalism for me was a port in the storm of life Uh, and it had an almost instantaneous effect because i remember there was another yappy person in the congregation and i gave them the nickname the poison dwarf and the poison dwarf came up to me and said well, what do you want to be? In a very sarcastic tone, expecting me to say Presbyterian minister, to which he would have some really sarcastic response. And I simply said, I want to be a journalist and I want to write for the Sunday world. And he physically backed away from Mm -hmm. me. I knew he was onto a good thing.
0: Um, What were some of your aspirations before you started your journalistic training?
1: Um, I became a born again Christian at the age of 12 so my aspirations then i was totally convinced that god was calling me either into the mission field Mm -hmm. as a presbyterian missionary in africa or following in my dad's footsteps as a presbyterian minister working here in ireland Mm -hmm. Uh, i think it was a point of me telling god i was going to do this i was going to do that i think god had clearly other plans for me 45 years in journalism
0: um I know you first started working at the BBC, which is probably the main goal of many journalism and TV students here at the college. What was your experience working there at the time?
1: Absolutely fantastic. Mm -hmm. I have to say that when I joined the BBC uh, in 1981, uh, shortly after graduation, uh, basically summer of 81, uh, I was a freelance correspondent uh, in the Mm -hmm. Mid-Antrim, Mid-County Antrim and basically I had a what was called a year reel-to-reel tape recorder, it was the equivalent of a portable tape recorder, and I went around interviewing people.
0: Was the BBC your first birth job in the journalism, or you Um, did newspapers before?
1: Yes, I was in newspapers uh, before that. Um, During the time of my three years that I spent at Colerian University Mm -hmm. doing my journalist training. Uh, I was a trainee reporter and photographer with the late Morris O'Neill in the Ballymena Guardian. Mm -hmm. So I would have written uh, Ballymena Guardian, Ballymena Times, Coleray and Chronicle as part of my, you might call it, work experience.
0: Well, now the listeners have more info about you, um, let's get back to the main topic of discussion Um, The late 60s is when the troubles began. Do you have anything etched in your memory from back then? Do you have any memories from some of the organized marches in Belfast, Derry, especially the Battle of the Bogside?
1: Yes, I I remember the Battle of the Bogside because I was on my summer holidays with uh, my mum and dad. Mm -hmm. And my mum and dad uh, were always great newsletter readers. And I remember one of my daily chores was to go to the local shop in Port Ballantrae and get the newsletter. And I remember the headlines, Battle of the Bogside, uh, and seeing some of the horrific footage uh, as well and pictures of what was happening up there. Um, I I suppose uh, there was a series of troubles from 1956 to 62. Uh, sometimes known as the border campaign I was born in 1959 right in the heart of that so I I don't really have much uh, memory of Mm -hmm. that particular border campaign Uh, but certainly the real troubles that kicked off in 1968-69 I I remember vividly uh, from the horrific pictures that were in the news media and indeed uh, probably one of the most striking images for me I, I said I uh, was a born, became a born-again Christian at the age of 12. That was during a united mission in Clough and Morris Presbyterian Churches in January 1972. And I remember the last night of the mission, that great evangelical mission, was Bloody Sunday. And I remember coming home uh, from what should have been a great celebratory Uh, evangelical mission and we all crowded around the black and white TV to watch the horrific scenes uh, of what had happened up in Londonderry uh, in that late January uh, 1972 and it sort of etched on my mind uh, again with the troubles, why do people need to resort to violence to push a political agenda irrespective of where that violence is coming from And it was something that when I did move into journalism, uh, I set set out, coming from a church background, coming from a Christian background, to try and discover why do people need to use Mm -hmm. violence.
0: Is there speculation on the exact date it all began?
1: Yes, it would have been late 60s. '60s, Uh, It's hard, really, uh, unlike a football match where Mm -hmm. the whistle goes and you know it starts, uh, some people might say it had been building up for years, mm-hmm. some people might even go back to partition of Ireland in the 1920s, that that's when the foundation yeah. uh, of the current troubles that erupted in the 60s were led. It really depends on your own historical perspective, mm-hmm. your own historical research, when you decide when the troubles actually kicked off. You could even go back even further, a number of centuries, uh, yeah. to perhaps the colonialization of Ireland, maybe even go back even further uh, to whenever the Vikings started their rampages through Ireland. So that I suppose, really, whenever we're looking at the sectarian conflict here in Ireland, it's really almost like a box of chocolates. You pick, pick the one. I know it's a box of chocolates, uh, may sound uh, very flippant given the thousands of people who have died over the centuries in atrocities in Ireland. But certainly that's the only way of uh, looking at uh, when the things started. Take your pick.
0: What was the most compelling investigative piece you've read in during the conflict?
1: Uh, I suppose for me, um, There were allegations started uh, in the 1980s of what was called collusion Mm -hmm. between Loyalist death squads uh, and elements of the British security forces. Now, I have to say that um, in that investigation, I became fascinated. Was there any truth to these allegations? Mm -hmm. But one of the problems was sources kept telling me, John, don't poke your nose into that. And of course, me being yeah, yeah, me being the rebellious preacher's kid that I've always been, whenever you say, it's a bit like uh, the Father Ted uh, episode, don't push the red button, uh, I pushed the red mm-hmm. button. And I started to investigate these allegations of collusion. Uh, and I wrote a series of articles, uh, one for the Sunday News. Um, I did some freelance work with BBC Panorama on it. But where it really, came to blow up in my face was whenever I was commissioned, I was then a newspaper, weekly newspaper editor, and I was commissioned by Channel 4 to work on a programme for the Dispatches series, Investigating Collusion. Uh, and for me, it was a matter of um, in talking to my sources, uh, putting together my research and simply doing it for Channel 4, but the whole programme blew up in our faces. I would say it was because we didn't do our backlash factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's something that I would always encourage young journalists and wannabe journalists to think about. that What are the consequences of you publishing or broadcasting this particular story? I thought that the, there would be a backlash. I estimated it would go off like a hand grenade. It went off like a hydrogen bomb. And we became... The source of the news. Mm-hmm. People wanted to know why did you make this program? Why did you poke your nose into collusion? And it nearly effectively ended my career in in journalism here in Northern Ireland. And quite literally, the only way that I could get staying in Northern Ireland because I was in a bucket load of trouble uh, was to actually leave frontline journalism. Mm-hmm. And I hid out.
0: Years, was it? Yeah,
1: for sixteen months. For 16 months, I hid out in public relations in the private health sector where really the only controversial story that I did for those 16 months was I interviewed a couple in a nursing home who said that they were making love on a haystack whenever German bombers flew overhead to Blitz Belfast. <laughs> and that was the most contentious thing I did in those 16 months, that interview.
0: That was the only thing you, you know.
1: I literally had to, to hide yeah. out. Uh, It was an interesting time, you know, I I met a lot of interesting people in PR, but my first love is frontline journalism, so that uh, eventually, whenever I got the move back into frontline journalism, uh, again, I snapped it up.
0: From the five principal types of journalism, would you say investigative journalism is closest to your heart?
1: Yes, yeah. Uh, I I suppose now I classify myself, uh, God willing, on my next birthday I'll be 64, so I classify myself as a political commentator because the one thing I now have to think about is my wife and children, uh, and I don't want to investigate any story that puts them in danger. Um, I'm married to a former journalist um, from that aspect of things, so there's no fooling Uh, my missus uh, whenever I start working on stories and she's always saying to me are you sure you should be writing that are you sure you should be saying that
0: so she's the the more careful one
1: yes because uh, my wife uh, Sharon uh, she's also a preacher's kid Mm -hmm. Uh, her father was a baptist pastor in Limerick uh, in southern Ireland Um, and uh, I suppose I'm a preacher's kid married to a preacher's kid Uh, She was a journalist, and I think where her cautiousness comes in uh, was the fact that she was a court reporter, whereas I was the gung-ho investigative journalist. She was very matter-of-fact court reporter. Quite
0: a different different
1: style of journalism. She enjoyed being in the courts, a type of writing uh, from that point of view.
0: Yeah. Some may say that politics is the root cause of most problems. You did the Ireland Eye column, which analyzed the political developments on both sides of the Irish border for 15 years. Tell us more about those 15 years of your life.
1: Yes, those particular 15 years, um, uh, there was two things that, uh, two hats that I wore. I was Ireland uh, columnist uh, for Tribune magazine, based in London, and I was also Northern political correspondent for the Irish Daily Star, which was based in Dublin. Um, Certainly, from that point of view, I got my eyes opened uh, quite a lot that the troubles are not over. I know that we have the Good Friday Agreement of 1998, and this year, 2023, we commemorate the 25th anniversary or the Silver Jubilee uh, of that particular agreement. But I have to say that during my time at the Irish Daily Star, I continued to interview active Loyalist and Republican paramilitaries. So that for me, the terror war did not end. One of the things that was really upsetting is that I believe that sectarianism was replaced by racism, homophobia, transphobia. New phobias entered the the political vocabulary. Yeah, certainly one of the things that uh, supposedly with the troubles ending, with the paramilitaries, main paramilitary ceasefires in 1994, followed four years later by the Good Friday Agreement, we thought, right, that's it all done and dusted, uh, peace in our time. As the saying goes, it wasn't that because I believed uh, to my dismay that there will always be people on the Republican community and the loyalist community who still want to indulge in violence, who still will not accept living together. Even to this day. And I think that if we bring it right up to 2023 and the Windsor uh, framework that they talk about to try and solve uh, the protocol, it is my earnest fear. I hope I am genuinely proved wrong in this, but it would be my fear that if we cannot bring political stability to Northern Ireland, that the loyalist hard men, we've already seen Republican hard men from what is called. Dissident Republicanism continuing their terror campaign. I would be afraid that the loyalist hard men uh, will come onto the streets and that we will be right back in the late sixties all over again. I wouldn't want to see that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the sad things is that I think that Ireland has not become, uh, not has not evolved as a multicultural, multi-faith society, Mm. as quick because of the troubles.
0: I think the people
1: did not come over here. um, Yes, and I think as a journalist, you grew up very, very fast here in Northern Ireland. Mm. I remember you mentioned my earlier career in the BBC, Uh, in September, uh, uh, 1981, after I got my NUJ card, that gave me access to shifts in the BBC newsroom in Broadcasting House, Belfast, and I remember it was my second ever shift, and I covered a murder, and I'd never covered a murder before. And uh, you know, as I went through my BBC shifts, occasionally from time to time, somebody from Network News would shadow me, a, a wee junior freelance, what because age were you? I would have been 21 22. 21, 22. So you would have got major, uh, big names in broadcasting, shadowing Wee John Coulter yeah. from Balomena <laughs> simply because I had notched up coverage of bombs, murders, explosions, paramilitary mm.
0: activity. What investigations have you done in terms of paramilitary groups, UVF, IRA? Tell us something you recollect from those experiences.
1: This always fascinated me coming from a Christian background, as I say, why did people need to use violence so I suppose I was on a pilgrimage journalistically Mm -hmm. to find out why do you need to use violence so that I used my sources in republicanism and loyalism to get to speak directly to sources to people who believed in using violence to try and answer this question for myself I still haven't got the answer Uh, and I'm saying that after 45 years uh, going on patrol with paramilitary groups, uh, interviewing terrorists, uh, interviewing people who believed in violence, even not just uh, limiting that pilgrimage to Northern Ireland in terms of republican and loyalists, but also <coughs> excuse me, interviewing people from the far right like the Ku Klux Klan, uh, some of the far right organisations like Lodge fourteen, um, interviewing Al Qaeda some of the Islamic radical uh, people, uh, mm-hmm. from that point of view, trying to find out why do you need to use violence to pursue your political agenda? Why can't it be through the ballot box and the ballot box only? I haven't found the answer. We don't
0: have an answer for that. No.
1: I think really it comes down to humanity, mm-hmm. that there are will always be an element within humanity who... Do not recognize the legitimacy of democracy, who do not recognize the legitimacy of the ballot box and um, giving people their choice, that basically their political agenda comes down the barrel of a gun, it comes down through the timer on a bomb.
0: When it all came to an end with the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, did it really feel like the decades of violence were truly over? What do you remember from 98, 99?
1: Well, what I would add to that is I never really believed. Uh, My late father was one of the backroom team in the Ulster Unionist Party uh, who helped negotiate uh, and bring into reality Mm -hmm. the the Good Friday Agreement. But I genuinely believe deep in his heart he knew that it would only be a holding operation because if you take a look at Irish history, the violence goes in cycles. Mm -hmm. And you can go right back, what, seven, eight centuries uh, to see how uh, various events have unfolded. It's almost like a kettle that is constantly kept on the boil. It boils up, it bubbles over, it cools off. It boils up, it bubbles over, and it is that cycle. And I think that one thing that sort of uh, concerned me was I remember on one occasion being at a coffee morning, a fundraising event for a political party. And there was a member of the European parliament was there and, um, the good Friday agreement had come into being. And I simply asked him, you know, have we got, uh, as Neville Chamberlain said, when he had the Munich agreement, do we have peace in our time? And he said, no, give it 15, 20 years and it all blew up again. Mm-hmm. And one of the dangers is we now have a generation of young people coming through society for whom people like the late Dr. Reverend Ian Paisley, the late Martin McGinnis of Shane Fein, the late John Hume, the late David Trimble, people who brought the peace process and worked the peace process and worked stormont they're all dead. And to these young people, they're merely names in a history mm-hmm. book. We now have a generation of republican and loyalist for whom the nineteen ninety four ceasefires again dates in history books. Yeah,
0: memories and, and trauma, I suppose, for for younger people they carry. more.
1: Yes, I, I think you're looking at a situation here where society is changing, and what I mean by that is a generation of young people are coming through, and this is where the hope lies, mm-hmm. that maybe <coughs> they can break out of the sectarian orange-green, and they can start looking at politics, they can start looking at society through A mainland, lens. Yeah, yeah, mainland Britain lens. So instead of it, quite bluntly, being through Catholic, Protestant, Republican, Loyalist, mm-hmm. maybe they could look at it if we take mainland Britain, Conservative, Labour, liberal democrat Mm -hmm. maybe if that sort of mindset came in then maybe we've got a hope for the future
0: i think so too is the future based on equality and peace do you think there could be such thing will the peace walls ever come down
1: no uh, i think there will always be a section of the republican community and the loyalist community who will not accept anything who will see any attempt at working together as some kind of sellout and that they believe bomb first, talk later. Uh, That was a saying that was given to me by a loyalist terrorist when I interviewed him in 2005 and I was trying to see, look, would they disengage? Would they decommission? Would they leave the scene? And his re answer to me, and I remember I used that headline, bomb first, talk later.
0: Many people dream to live their retired life Mm -hmm. elsewhere. Where do you see yourself, John?
1: Well, I'm hoping to retire to a lovely little coastal uh, village called Castle Rock Mm -hmm. later this year. Or should I say, my wife has told me I'm going to retire to that. I think um, one of the things that I always had to cope with and I'll answer this in a roundabout way one of the things I always had to cope with as a journalist was I was very very close to my late father and when people didn't like what I wrote or broadcast they complained to dad Mm -hmm. and dad passed away through cancer in 2018 so that whilst I miss him terribly at the same time he's not there to be annoyed with people ringing up, do you know what your boy has written today? Mm -hmm. Or do you know what your boy said on this? So that basically I have now got a freedom, journalistically, to say things, to write things that basically, maybe before 2018 and dad's passing, I would have thought, uh, oh no, I better be careful how I do this. I better be careful uh, uh, that I need to tone this down because dad will only get a phone call and then he'll be on to me uh, and it'll be you know tension in the family. With dad and mom gone, I don't have that. My wife has recognized it and I think she doesn't want me ending up uh, like colleagues like the late Martin O'Hagan or the late Lara McKee yeah. that I knew as personal friends being shot mm-hmm. or being attacked. Uh, and certainly, you know, in the past couple of years, I've actually had to leave a church because of online abuse that was put up against the media. And I just felt so uncomfortable in that church that I I had to get out of it. So from that point of view, I think that in terms of retirement, my wife wants me to retire to Castle Rock, uh, and nice, a nice little, uh, house in Castle Rock where I can't do any harm to myself or the family.
0: Somewhere warmer, or no? Well, if it was going to be warmer, (laughs)
1: uh, my sister-in-law and her husband, uh, my brother-in-law, they have emigrated to Spain Mm -hmm. and they're natural now uh, Spanish residents. So while Spain, yes, I've covered the Spanish elections uh, during I visited them, I would be tempted to go to Spain from that point of view. Uh, The other place that I really would love to go Mm -hmm was i had a relative one time live for a, a period of time in lisbon not lisburn lisbon, lisbon in yeah. portugal and i would go out and stay with them uh from time to time and i became a great fan of benfica football club mm-hmm. uh because my relative's apartment was only 15 miles sorry 15 minutes from uh, the stadium, from the stadium. Yeah. so i've been to benfica grounds uh, the benfica ground with my shirt <coughs> And Scarf. So, from that aspect of things, I think we're looking at uh, somewhere in Spain that has a decent football club, um, maybe Atletico Bilbao, mm-hmm. you know, from I that. Know that
0: one. Yeah, yeah, Bilbao. <laughs> uh,
1: maybe go to uh, Lisbon uh, there. Uh, the other place uh, that I've been to is I used to have relations who lived and still do in Germany. So I'm looking at either Berlin, but preferably Nuremberg. Uh, I went to Nuremberg uh, on a holiday. Uh, They have a great Christmas shop there. Uh, Christmas markets, yeah. Christmas markets. The the German Christmas markets are fantastic. So I think uh, I'll go there. I don't want to go to America or uh, Australia or New Zealand or Canada because there's too many snakes there.
0: Finally, what advice would you give to any aspiring journalist?
1: I would say, follow your dream, work hard, but above all, obey the law. Think before you write. Think before you say something. That is the most important thing. Thinking time.
0: Would you say you also listen to your own advice in terms of health and safety and being careful?
1: Uh, No, uh, that's why I didn't mention health and (laughs) safety, because uh, I tend to take a very gung-ho attitude to certain things, especially in my investigations of the far right and racism and fascism. Um, I think that uh, basically I need to start looking uh, at my own code of practice uh, from that point of view. Uh, I think as well, it has had uh, a detrimental effect on my health. And I think that another of the reasons that my wife wants me to retire to Castle Rock is that she's concerned about the long-term effects in terms of your mental health and well-being uh, from that point of view, because journalism for me has become an addiction. Just as some people are addicted to alcohol or to smoking or vaping uh, or to illegal drugs uh, or even to prescription uh, medication, I'm a news junkie. I got a a fine. yeah, you have no idea. For someone who came up through a very sheltered Mm -hmm. existence, um, in spite of my rebellious past and heavy metal music, my upbringing was very sheltered. It revolved around the church and my school. I didn't go clubbing, I didn't go to discos, I didn't do drugs, I didn't do anything like that. I had a very sheltered upbringing, so that basically journalism was like a drug for me, I needed my next fix. And especially in my pilgrimage to find out about violence, why people needed to do violence, I needed to interview the next terrorist, the next paramilitary group to get that fix.
0: If you did it all over again, would you do it differently or no? Would you change anything?
1: No, because I need the fix. Uh, And I think that that's, that's what I would do. That's the main. Yeah, I think if I was to do anything over again, the one thing that I would do would be I didn't meet my wife until I was 27. And she's the rock of my life. Uh, She's the pillar of common sense uh, in our journalism. So I'd make a point of bumping into Sharon a lot lot sooner. (laughs) And maybe a lot of the stories that I did that maybe I shouldn't have done uh, in terms of stress. I I would say the only thing I'm proud of in terms of my journalistic career is that I've never received a solicitor's letter. I've always followed the advice of my very first editor, the late Morris O'Neill, and he summarised the law on ethics in a nursery rhyme. And he said, if in doubt, check it out. If still in doubt, leave it out. And I've strictly applied Morris's rule to every story. Unless I can stand up in any court of law, in this land 100% and legally prove everything that I've written or broadcast or I'm about to write or broadcast then I don't do it
0: thank you John for being here today and I really hope all listeners take something from this episode and to everyone listening please engage with the podcast on all social media platforms it's always interesting to hear your opinions as well thanks